I try to be a techno optimist a bit, right? Try and go, we've got ourselves into a bit of a state as a species, but at the same time, let's back ourselves to innovate, to, to, to get out of it. And the, the term innovation, the word innovation, means to create something new in order to change something established. And if you stop at the first part of that, create something new, it's the definition of invention. Hey guys, good to see you. Thanks for coming on the show. Ricky, it's, it's great to be talking to you. Thanks for having me. Awesome, mate. Hey, you're obviously a big timer at zero now, but <laughs> take us through your journey. How does one become executive GM at a global giant like zero? I don't know if I'd say I'm a, a big deal. I'm just getting to work with a whole bunch of really smart and amazing people, but I guess it depends how far back you want to go, mate. Let's you know, go. Go right back. Yeah. When I was born, no. I, <laughs> not, I, maybe not that. At, at, um, at university, I studied yeah. computer science and management science and information systems or, and really enjoyed that, particularly the IT side of things. And then left university and started working as a developer and then started to do a whole bunch of different things working at a, at a retailer here in New Zealand. And then at a certain point along the road, I, I met a person who started working for the company called an architect. And I never thought of an architect outside of building architecture. So I was like, oh, what is this person doing? And mm -hmm. found it really interesting. Like this, I, I call it like bridging between worlds, like trying to understand a lot of technology and understand a lot of business and bringing those two things together and found that I had a bit of a talent for it as well. And it lined up with what I'd studied at university and being, I'm a, I'm the eldest of seven kids. So I learned a lot with being part of a big family, like understanding technologies and different people's points of view and trying to wrestle those things together. So started to became an architect and then moved into a large bank here in New Zealand, ASB. So I was there for quite a while, actually, because I started working as an architect and then I started leading architects and then started leading architects and strategy people and innovation people and ended up as the title was chief architect, which was looking after architecture, strategy and innovation for the bank. And then about, what are we now? Four and a half years ago, five years ago, came to zero. Like I'd spent a lot of my time at the bank working on we talked about trying to be more like a technology company, just one that was licensed and trusted to provide financial services. That was the vision. Mm. And uh, having done that for nearly a decade and a half, it was like, actually, what, what's it like to work at an actual tech company? Came to zero and initially started up leading up the engineering practice and architects there. And then as zero continued to grow and one role became three people's roles and started yeah. to focus on leading the architecture team. And then about a year ago, tech strategy has always been a kind of a component of my role, if you like. I mean, about a year ago, I was talking with my boss about some of the growth myself and the needs that Zero was facing as we got bigger and have been doing the tech strategy role as like a dedicated role for about a year. Pretty cool. I want to come back to Zero and what you're doing there now, but sure. going back to your ASB days, I think you were there for 10, 10 and a half years. About 14 years, yeah. About 14 years. Wow. Yeah. That's amazing. You're yeah. a long-term. It's one That's of those things where I, like, I, I felt like I was only going to be there for two years, but it's just there's so much amazing stuff was happening and I kept doing different things and trying different, doing different roles. And even at 14 years, you're working alongside people who have been there for 40 years. 14, I feel like I'd finished the grad program. So the question I was going to ask you there, then 14 years, what was the biggest takeaway? What was the biggest takeaway in that time was the need to keep learning. And that probably sounds a bit hackneyed, but like mm. when I was there, like I was there during the GFC, I was there as like at the very start of my time at the bank, people would still be thinking about like phone banking was ringing up on a mm -hmm. landline to mm -hmm. check your balance, right? And by mm -hmm. the time I, I was leaving the bank, obviously mobile was very much the way most people do a lot of their banking. And, and along that journey, you'd see all these new technologies coming along and you'd, you'd see them grow and you see them develop. And 
you needed to constantly be learning. And, and, that, and that included checking your own assumptions and how much do you know about this topic and what else can you learn about it? And I think also on the outside looking in, sometimes people, banks or some uh, other established organizations, it's, it's almost a bit easy to, to poke a bit of fun and go, oh, they're a bit old or a bit slow or whatever. But the reality is they're incredibly complex organizations and there's so much to learn both on the outside, so the internal um, technologies that are emerging, but also on the inside, like as you're working with well, thousands of people, uh, you're getting all these opportunities to learn different perspectives and, and learn diversity. So I'd say keep, keeping learning all the time is probably the key thing I took away. It's, it's interesting when, when, when you're looking at, when you're talking about technology, some of the things we will often say, the more transparent we can make the technology layers and use it, the better, right? It's going to be, it's going to have a better outcome, better user interface, better user experience. So it basically it just happens. Uh, and then when you're working in a bank where you've got thousands of people and as a customer, we've all called these sorts of places and you go like, yeah, I'd like to ask a question about this. And you go to the spiel. Oh, I just need to transfer you to someone else. And then you're sitting on hold or they give you a number you got to call. So it's a very non-transparent, like what the internal structure of a bank looks like at, with, uh, to an outsider. And then, but then you're actually bringing that sort of technology piece to it, which allows people just to interact with their bank in a much more sort of you know, fluid kind of way. It must have been really tricky to try and bring together those different pieces. I'm interested in any insights you might have on looking at that, so trying to take a complex structure of an organization and make it simple from a technology perspective. Yes, interesting, like making it simple or getting the job done simple. Like mm. I think that's the way, like mm. a lot of the sort of design thinking methodology for people who have studied that, and you're really going to that the customer, the job to be done, the customer problem that you're trying to solve. And I think that Acknowledging that the problem has multiple steps and the interactions that the customer has with you as an organization is going to be multi-pronged, particularly when you're talking about organizations that are walking along with the customer through their life journey. If you take like a retail bank or through their small business journey, if you take zero, like you're, in, you're invested in that relationship for years, decades sometimes. And so the nature of the interaction and the jobs you're trying to get done can be quite complex. And so then to have an organization that's inevitably creating specializations like points that are to deal with risk or to deal with requirements that are coming in from a mobile channel like you find yourself compartmentalizing just so that you can start to scale and be able to meet those needs so i think it's the challenge around people you may have if you've heard of conway's law so yeah conway's law which basically says that the architecture of your technology starts to reflect the communication lines of your organization and so being very aware of that and cognizant of that so you don't throw additional unnecessary complexity into what might already be quite a complex job mm. to be done from a customer point of view. That's the challenge, right? That's the, the hopefully healthy tension between growing and scaling and changing as an organization and not putting all that burden on your customers while you're trying to remove burdens from them by solving problems for them. So I find it really just, it's just a fascinating, mm. engaging environment, modern business and technology. And Bridging between those worlds is something I can't really see myself getting bored with. <laughs> yeah, talking about getting bored or not bored, I found your role, the title and everything associated with it quite interesting, James. So EGM, technology strategy and integration, what is a typical day or a week for someone like you? What does that look like? Yeah, I don't know if there's a typical day, but mm. I think that if I look at the, so the role, technology strategy and integration, strategy is really about plotting a course of action. But that's the way I look at strategy. It's a course of action to try and achieve some objectives and desired results, right? And the realization that, especially when you're a small team or more of a specialist function like technology strategy, your job isn't really so much to create the tech strategy. Like I don't, 
you know, go away and come back and go, here we go, I've got the strategy, off you go, good luck at executing it. <laughs> it's far more to curate the technology mm-hmm. strategy. Ricky, you said very nice things about being an important person at zero. It's more that I work with these incredible leaders in technology and product and our customer organization. And when you think about trying to plot that course of action, curating it means working with them, engaging with them, understanding what's going on in their parts of the business, what's going on in their specialist area, what are the challenges that they're seeing, what are the opportunities that they're seeing. And so a lot of my role, and I guess my typical day or typical week, if there was such a thing, is a lot of meeting, listening, and thinking. And hopefully the listening has the more of an emphasis. It's something where having moved from leading sort of larger teams to now being more specialized and this last year, it's been a real good opportunity for me to reset myself and go, okay, this is more a matter of engaging with people and listening and not necessarily having all the best ideas, but trying to draw them mm. out from others and then mm. connect to them. So I, I talk about like framing is really important, being able to provide people a, a once an architect, always an architect. So I love frameworks. <laughs> but being able to provide them some structure that can help yeah. bring their ideas and connect them to other ideas. And then I think probably the, the other big part of my role is communicating. So communicating mm. both internally and then externally with our mm. customers and partners. And so a typical day is a combination of those verbs. Yeah, so kind of yeah. meeting and listening and thinking and framing and, and, and communicating with, with, with people. That makes sense. And you're privileged to be surrounded by these beautiful minds who are constantly coming with a bunch of ideas. So how do you then prioritize those ideas into execution? What does that process look like in an organization like Zero? Yeah, I think it's, it's part of the, it's the blessing and the curse of being in an organization that has got so much opportunity and so much ambition and so many amazing people working for us and with us that you're, it's a high quality problem, but it's a problem, which is trying to pick what do you focus on and, and how do you figure out where you're going next. I'd love to tell you that it's this really well-structured, here's the process map, and I may or may not have tried to do that in the past when I was in the architecture <laughs> role. The reality is I think it's far more organic, mm. and it comes from that connecting and listening component with each other. One of the things that I think we're getting very good at doing is starting to capture our decisions and document them and be able to say, we've made that call, now let's move forward. Whereas I think one of the challenges a lot of organizations really steer into is the relitigation, right? They're going back and, mm-hmm. and looking at the same decision again and again. But the prioritization one, I'd love to be able to say there's a real simple answer to it. I think it's a lot of negotiation. I think it's facilitation. Being clear on your purpose and your vision helps. Zero's got a very clear, you know, our purpose is to help make lives better for people in small business, their advisors and their communities around the world. And that's not just a catchphrase. Like we truly hold to that purpose. And our vision is to be the most insightful and trusted small business platform. So you can use those as lenses through which you look at the pieces of work that we're trying to do. But inevitably, people have got different perspectives on the right way to do that, the best way to do that. And that's really what managing diversity is about. You don't want to Mm. cancel out everyone's opinions. You're trying to bring them together and go, okay, well, what's the negotiation there and how do we go? So yeah, if I can find a way of articulating it in a simple process, I will let you know. <laughs> what a way to hear. The, the, the one thing that's come up though, that's, there's no denying it, is AI and custom engagement, AI and literally everything that you can think of. How are you and the team at Zero thinking about AI and especially with tying it back to your vision when it comes to small businesses? So tell us a little bit about that, James. Yeah, I think, yeah, AI is, it's a fascinating area, right? And we've got, so our, some of our experts internally on who, every day, this is what they're thinking about. Whereas and for me, it's one of the kind of key threads that comes through where the technology um, landscape is evolving, if you like. Generative AI in particular has been the thing that's got everyone very 
excited over the last last year, really. But AI obviously runs a lot deeper than that. A lot of different types of AI been around for, for decades, really, mm. in different forms, machine learning and things like that. And so really, we look at it through the lens of coming back to actually the problems to solve, the jobs to be done for customers. How can we help? How, how can this technology help solve those problems? And I was talking about that recently, uh, saying that it's different when you look at these things just through the lens of hype. Sometimes you can get a bit carried away with the promise or the opportunity. But if you can look at it through the lens of help, then it helps you focus in on what are the problems you're trying to solve. And so we know, for example, that artificial intelligence can help with reducing toil. It can help with automating manual tasks. It can help with generating insight. And if we can target our efforts on those areas, then we know that's self-help. Because if we're trying to make a small business, a person in a small business's life better, what we're trying to do is save them time and try and give them time back so they can work on their business. So if there are manual tasks that we can help optimize or help automate and AI can help us with that, then that's a good way to look at it. The important point, I think, is to note that different types of AI solve different types of problems. Yeah, right? I, I was, I was going to ask that question. Which different types of AI? Listening to some of it, it, it does sound like there are some if-then-else almost scenarios. If this occurs, we can automate this process. But like, how are you using decision trees? Are you using genetic algorithms? Are you using clustering? What, what kind of AI are you using? Yeah, so if you think about something like our cash flow forecasting tool, right, which is where we, it's, it's predictive AI. So we'll look at historical trends in order to predict future trends and provide that view of the likely 90-day forecast of where, where your cash flow might be heading. Mm. Um, if you think about the, then you take some of the generative AI experiments that we're doing, like what we're doing with in our onboarding exper um, experiment, like helping people onboard to the Zero platform or helping with getting answers to questions that people ask when they use Zero Central, which is like our learning center for how to use the product. That's where a generative AI, a large language model, is helpful because it can provide that unstructured question and answer back and forward. But you wouldn't use that in a space where you're trying to generate. And so our, our AI products team, like that's, they look at the, the whole lot. They've got the expert data scientists and machine learning experts who look at all the different techniques and the different models and different ways of doing things and that's how they come at it what's the problem does this help and then try and solve it that way so so you're typically trying to solve a specific problem and they so said you pick a, a technology and, a, and, and train a model to solve a specific problem yeah i think it's it is an mostly that's the approach i think sometimes and generative ai is a good example because it, there's ex, there's an experimentation mentality because you need to there's emergent capability right there's a whole nother conversation about that and you try and figure out what is it? what is possible and where are the limits and the hallucination challenges that a lot of people are very aware of what does that look like and how do you tackle that from a grounding point of view and it's not like it's it's a clear cut toolbox it's more a matter of yeah. we've got the problem space in mind let's explore and understand this technology and go oh okay what is it unlocking in terms of capabilities oh great those things match up but it's just as important to go mm, those things don't match up so let's not look at it through that's not going to work in this particular product or this area James, looking at the broader tech trends for 2024, what advice would you give to small businesses aiming to stay informed and agile and adopting all these emerging technologies? We spoke about generative AI, but there's obviously a lot more to it too. Yeah, I think I'd come back to actually what you asked before about the key learning I took away from mm -hmm. the bank in terms of continual learning. That's what I'd be encouraging people to do is to find avenues to learn about these technologies and not just reading a headline or one piece because then you're only going to get one perspective. So one of the things we've been doing over the last nearly 18 months now is our Future Focus initiative, which is where we're 
coming out with explainer videos ourselves and leveraging in some of the amazing talent we've got internally and the knowledge we've got. And I get to go and interview amazing people who are working in these spaces day to day. And we're putting that content out for anyone who wants to access it as a way of being able to particularly focusing on accounting and bookkeeping and small business and say, this is some of what we're seeing. And so I I'd obviously encourage people to look at yeah, that. Yeah. But there are other there are so many other sources out there. And I think finding as many of them as possible to try and almost triangulate. So getting people, like if you take any one of these technologies, like the metaverse, I was talking to someone about this literally today, and you'll find some people who are huge on it. They think it's going to be the you know, transformation of the world. There are others who think it's already had its day and it's, it's died a death. And I would basically say trying to get competing viewpoints so that you can then figure out, okay, the application for me in my life or in my business I can triangulate, I can start to go, oh, wait a minute, there's perspectives on both sides. If you just get the people who tell you it's going to be great mm. or just get you the people who are going to say mm. it's a disaster, then you're probably, you're closing yourself off from inside there. That's a very true statement. I saw a lot of your, actually a couple of your recent feature focus uh, episodes were around that sort of blockchain. Mm. So it, got, it has me wondering if that is something that's, that's you know, on top of mind to you at the moment. Yeah, I've found, in fact, when we first started the Future Focus initiative, that's that was one of the key questions we were getting coming through to us from our, we have councils with accountants and bookkeepers, and they were coming through us saying, look, we're getting questions about blockchain and cryptocurrencies and NFTs and what is this stuff? Can you help? And that's what sort of was the initial trigger point. And it's funny because here we are 18 months later and people aren't talking about those technologies in, in quite the same way. <laughs> yeah, and, and and they're at a different stage in, in the old hype cycle. And I think for me, like I look at those technologies, coming back to what we've been talking about in terms of mm. finding problems to solve and unlocking capabilities. I've been really big, and we had a couple of episodes on this, about decentralized digital identity or self-sovereign identity. Mm. And it's a thing that not a lot of people know much about. It's not, a, it's not an area that people spend a lot of time in. If I was to summarize it, it basically is taking the advantage of something like a decentralized ledger like blockchain or a blockchain to be able to provide validation of a claim of identity. So if you think about the number of things when you're online and you and it's asking you for your date of birth. Now, it doesn't actually need your date of birth. The, the company just needs to know, are you an adult? Are you over 18? So if I can provide you a claim that I'm over 18, that's been validated on the computationally validated, then I'm able to say, there you go. That's all you need to know. I don't need to tell you my birth date, which is a sensitive mm-hmm. piece of information. And that is a, that's something that's made possible by the kind of technology that's emerging. But it's just not where all the hype was. It's not where the headlines mm-hmm. were. It's not where everyone turned their <laughs> attention to it. And we're at this point where, where people are going, oh, it's, it's done. It's had its day. And I'm like, it depends on the problem you're trying to solve. Because I think there's a lot of potential in some of those technologies, just maybe not where people were first looking for it. I agree. Like we, we, we went to a, uh, a couple of years ago, we were at the um, AFR top, uh, one of the top most innovative companies and get awards and that kind of stuff. I actually found it really interesting when it got down to the top 10, like here's the top 10 companies, the most innovative companies in ANZ. In it was like nine out of the 10 of them were doing something with blockchain. But out of all of them, except for one, I was like, you could do that on a database, you could do yeah. that on a spreadsheet. Like, why does that need to be a blockchain? So it was quite an interesting. Yeah, it was always like we have a solution. Now we're trying to find a problem to, to match the solution as opposed to the other way around. And something, you know, I, I find I have to be a little bit careful of when it comes to some of these new technologies. It's like, oh, we're just going to use this new thing because it's cool, not because actually it has an application. Yeah, 100% agree with you. There was this uh, perspective for all the architects when I was leading architects. One of the first things I'd try and get them to do in any point of engagement when they're first starting up 
the first question to find out is what's the business problem you're trying to solve? Mm-hmm. And that seems like such a simple question and inevitably it was never simple. There was always different perspectives on what that might be and a lot of work to get there. But if you start with the problem or the opportunity then you and then you tr- tree everything trees from there, then you know what to ground yourself and you know what to come back to. Mm-hmm. And um, this quote I love from Thomas Sowell, who said, there's no solutions, there are only trade-offs. And so anytime mm-hmm. you actually try to solve a really wicked problem, you inevitably are just introducing a new set of trade-offs. Now, there may be trade-offs that you prefer to the situation of not having those trade-offs in play, but they're trade-offs nonetheless. And if you're blinded by the excitement and the hype and the potential of the technology and you're not moored to a problem that you're trying to solve, then it can get a little bit disconnected and you can maybe find yourself a little bit lost. And I think that, I don't think anyone's perfect at that, but I think holding back to that core philosophy of what's the problem you're trying to solve and does this help mm. makes that a little bit more of a quantitative exercise than just opinionated. It's really quick and easy to forget it when you get caught up in that hype. But it's, it's interesting that we, we speak to a lot of technology companies or software companies every single day, and, and we'll come across people that will claim to be using a type of technology or want to be using a type of technology or even are. And you look at them and you're like, either that's actually not a type of technology, like it's not something, like it's, not, you know, it's not required to be on a blockchain or something like that. It's just, it, yeah. If we, but if we could put this into our pitch deck or whatever it is, then it helps us go and raise more money and we can generate more hype and people are more excited about the opportunity or something. Different problem you're solving, right? When you're going at it from that lens, absolutely, yeah. I in, in my my home life, like I love playing with home automation. Like I'm a geek. Like I admit it. My, my 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 wife is absolutely super keen on the fact that I'm always playing with home automation. Oh yeah, um, yeah, really oh. is really big fan. <laughs> but there are times when I've literally solved a problem, and that's been great. And there'll be times where I'm just like, "Well, oh, this is cool and shiny. Let's see what we can do with it." And that's more an experimentation mindset. But when my wife and kids are the subjects of the experiment, they have a very different take on it. So I think it's just, I've got reminders of it in my own personal life as well as professional. Yeah, I totally get that. Hey, so with all the different technology that you've been playing around with or listening about or doing research on, James, what excites you the most? Oh, what excites me the most? There's plenty of road to run on AI, obviously. Like, mm. I don't think we've really scratched the surface of that at all. I think of the big trends that we look at and people think about I, I, I think the metaverse hasn't had its day yet. I think not as many people who talk about it have actually read, you know, Snow Crash or it's where the original kind of concept was hashed or, and they get quite confused between virtual reality and augmented reality. And I, I think there's a lot of potential still there in terms of, particularly as other technologies come online that start to make the metaverse as envisaged in science fiction more realistic. So if you think about it, we've already got massive computing power that's available in the cloud. We've already got ubiquitous connectivity so that you can be out in the real world and be blending physical and digital realities because you're not having to worry about connectivity. What we don't really have, we've got some of the display tech starting to come online, right, with the Vision Pro and things like that. But what we don't really have is the battery power. That seems to be, to me, the constraining factor. That and some of the miniaturization of display technology. So when my glasses just look like glasses but are augmented, I think that's really... Interesting. So for me, I'm really watching battery technology and seeing where that, I think it's an interesting kind of frontier for businesses as well as to think about, I think everyone knows because the internet was a thing and <laughs> still is and mobile was a thing and still is. And so it's, there's a fear about missing out on the next big thing and whether the metaverse is the next big thing or it's just an extension of the realities that we're operating in. I think it'd be really interesting to watch. And so I'm keeping an eye on that, obviously the AI side of things. And I do come back to, and I've said for a, a, quite a while, I think AI really 
gets its power when it's not so much about the artificial intelligence, but where it's augmenting human intelligence. And that's where there's a lot of potential there. And I think probably the other one that I'm green tech is huge, obviously, for the right reasons. And that has implications for businesses as well. So one of the episodes we were talking about carbon accounting and the reality of what that starts to mean for a small business and the expectations on you. And actually, Curtis, to your point around the questions of the blockchain, the ability to trace the, um, the origin or the provenance of your supply chain and then connect that to carbon emissions and sustainability standards. I think that's yeah. a really interesting area as well. So I think about renewable energy certificates and that kind of stuff, which is, is cruising around. Yeah, it, it, they actually are really difficult to manage, to generate, to, to validate. All that. And then obviously to sell them on the market, also carbon emissions, all that fun stuff. It is. And, and it's, I try to be a techno-optimist a bit, right? Try and go, we've got ourselves into a bit of a state as a species, but at the same time, let's back ourselves to innovate, to, to, to get out of it. And the, the term innovation, the word innovation, means to create something new in order to change something established and if you stop at the first part of that create something new it's the definition of invention so innovation is trying to change something established with that new thing we've got plenty of established problems that mm. we could really turn our minds to and so that's my hope especially when you cast out beyond the forecastable horizon so when you go ah oh, what's 10 years now what's 15 years from now that's my hope is maybe we can lay these foundations in a way that would point to the, a future that's brighter I like that. Coming back to zero, James, what's next on the horizon for zero? Can you share anything? What's in the sneak peek box? In the sneak peek box? It's, I think some of the stuff that we've been talking about most recently in terms of some of those experiments, like continuing to see how those evolve as an area, like we've definitely seen that um, there's a lot of interest and excitement. We did some research of about 3,000 small business owners around the world and the things they were telling us that they were interested in was obviously AI, but also more education and support and understanding how those things could increase their productivity. And so we, yeah, without giving too much away, the stuff that we're really interested in comes back to that streamlining manual processes and delivering the right insight at the right time. And so I think we take a strategic view when it comes to any of the investment in that space, but having experimentation informing it and doing mm. it in a safe way, that's a key part of learning that, right? So we can learn and deploy it in the right way. So we're starting to see that with those experiments that we're running um, right now. Nice one. And I've got last one question for you, James, coming back to you. Spotlight's on you here. When you do decide to hang up your boots, what does James want to be known for? What what legacy do you want to leave behind? That's, wow. That's a... Let's put it in a, professional context because yeah, I think... Yeah, professional context. I, thinking on, on my feet, I would say I started my career fixing problems, providing solutions to problems. So as a coder, as an engineer, that's what you do. You solve problems. And then as I became an architect, you're solving different kinds of problems. And then the next sort of phase of my career was leading people who solve problems. So leading architects and leading engineering teams and things like that. And of recent, I've started to, when I moved into this role, which is a bit more of an individual contributor role again, after you know, sort of 20 years of doing other things, I now start to see the, the value that I feel I can deliver is helping others solve their problems so rather than me solving them so it's more i'd like to see this part of my career between you know, to now and retirement <laughs> as uh, as well as a very active space and where i'm able to help bridge help frame mm. help inspire help ideate and help people solve their problems help them solve them and so it's that kind of helping them help themselves component. Yeah. It's something that. that resonates with us quite a lot. Obviously, having um, 
been through the journey that we've been on and having had the success that we've had as well. It's like now we're working with other founders to help them on the same journey and help guide them and to the point where then they can just pick up and learn and drive their own companies, their own visions forward as well, bring their teams. But that's very close to us. It's awesome. It's a big aspect of leadership, right? Is when you can lead mm. people to a point where they are helping themselves. Like it's the teaching them how to fish as opposed to always being there just to solve the problem. And it, it reflects my own growth or change in my career from when you can compile the code and that it works and you go, great, I've solved that problem. It's very fast feedback loop. When you're working mm. in strategy and you might not see the full fruit of your strategy for years to come. And it's one of those things where you start assessing the impact you've had on organizations you've worked with or people that you've worked with. So it's a, it's, a, it's a deep question. I have to, Ricky, next time I'll, I'll put some more thought into it. You've done really well, mate. Would love to take you through a quick fire round, James. These are meant to be easy. It's meant to give you a little bit of breathing space, but one or two can get a little bit controversial. So Ooh, okay. kick off with an easy one. Here we go. Yeah. Favorite sports team. I'm a Kiwi, so if I don't say the All Blacks, I'll, <laughs> I, I, then my, my passport will be cut up. But if you're asking, like, actually, I'm a big fan of the Boston Celtics. I'm a big basketball yeah. fan. And so oh, I'd nice. probably say Boston Celtics. Oh, mate. So am I. Obviously, we can go layers deep about oh. the players and stuff, but we'll leave that for another day, perhaps. <laughs> what about favorite music type? What's on your Spotify playlist? Or what are you listening to most? Yeah, my, my daughter was really annoyed because she was at school and they did the Spotify rap thing where they look up yeah, and, yeah. and it's a shared account. And she goes, Dad, it was one of your like those jazz music that I don't know, owe someone. And I was like, you mean Oscar Peterson, who's one of the greatest jazz musicians <laughs> of all time. So I find myself listening to quite a lot of jazz and then at the same time electronic and because it's and sometimes classical because there's quite a lot of layering and rules yeah, that are being right. broken and bent. So I find those are probably my favorite genres. Awesome. No no Taylor Swift then picking up her vibes D- on the Didn't your appear on that, on my <laughs> my wrapped. No, not so much. <laughs> nice. What about this one? Favorite movie of all time? Oh, of all time. I was going to say, if it's of this time of the year, it's diehard because it's yeah, Christmas. Yeah, yeah. But if it's, if it's of all time, oh, I probably would have to go Star Wars. But then we can get in a whole conversation as to which Star Wars movie. Well, yeah, I, just, you know. I yeah. assume the yeah. first one, but I could be entirely wrong. Yeah, I'd probably go Empire. I'd probably yeah. go Empire Strikes Back. That's Although I was a big fan of Return of the Jedi for a long time. So I'd probably still say it's the classics. Um, but at the moment, yeah, it's the countdown to Christmas. The Christmas movies are on a bit of rotation in the house at the moment. Yeah, I can imagine. What about favorite place to visit? Oh, oh you're going to actually answer in two ways. Favorite place to visit and the fa- place that's on your bucket list. Favorite place to visit, if I think like local, is I love the Coromandel part yeah. of New-, New Zealand. It's a beautiful part of the country. And in terms of kind of islands, exotic places that are well, more exotic places, love spending time in the Pacific Islands. So Rarotonga, Fiji, places like that. On the bucket list, I've never been able to make it to Rome. And I'm a good Catholic boy. Like I'd like to be able to get to Rome and be able to, I'm also a fan of pasta and I like gelato. So Rome is on the bucket list for me. Yeah, absolutely. Great place. All the great places actually. Now this is the main one. This is what we actually designed the whole podcast for. The reason why we're doing this is peanut butter. Crunchy or smooth? How's that even a question, Ricky? It's got to be crunchy. It's got to be crunchy. It's never, there's no doubt as far as we can turn. Correct. It's, it's got to be crunchy. Like smooth is, smooth is, I don't know, sometimes good for, I don't know, putting in smoothies if you wanted to add in some protein or something. But even then, I'd just go crunchy. You still put crunchy in. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Absolutely. Uh, all right. Crunchy <laughs> filet every day. Um, you're on the good books. Uh, thanks again, James, for coming on, sharing all your insights and wisdom and making sure crunchy is the right answers. Thanks once again. Real pleasure. Great talking to you, Ricky and Curtis. Thanks for having me.